Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Dr. Dan Burkhoff on the first of a two-part episode. Dan is the Director of Heart Failure, Hemodynamics, and Circulatory Support at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. He is here with us today to speak about the fundamental principles of preload, afterload, contractility, and lucidrophy how they are quantified on pressure volume diagrams, and how they are affected in heart failure. Let's jump in. Someone has asked, what is the best way to choose loops to analyze occlusion data? So, you know, maybe at the highest level, what are some ways in which some people can follow some rules as far as selecting families of loops, generating load-independent measures? That's a great question, and it's obviously not a, not a simple, straightforward answer, and there's a bit of subjectivity to it. First of all, it's important to start, the first consideration is what method are you using to measure the loops? And the two main, if you're measuring online things, the two main ways are with a conductance catheter or an impedance catheter, and with sonomicrometry, where you're, you're assessing volume by sonomicrometry. If you're, if you're looking at, if you're using a conductance catheter, you have to be careful at, when you do an IVC occlusion because things change on the right ventricle first and the right atrium before they change on the left ventricle, and that can change the parallel conductance. So there's a period of time where you might see a slight leftward shift of the loops where it's really a reflection of a change in the, a change in the parallel conductance as opposed to a change in the actual uh, volumes of the ventricle. So you've got to be careful. At the, at the very onset of an IVC occlusion with that technique. With, with the sonicrometers, you don't have that problem. That's point number one. Point number two is you've got to be careful that you are not including beats that are arrhythmias. So again, when you, when you change the load, sometimes you can, you can induce arrhythmias. And you've got to exclude not only the, the beat that's arrhythmogenic, but a beat or two after that, because the contractility is interval dependent and the, that interval dependence has a history. So if you have a single PVC, and then that, the influence of that could be, you know, could be felt two or three or four beats afterwards, depending on how premature it is. So that's where there's a little bit of subjectivity. So what you're looking for are, are loops whose points, end systolic points, fall along a reasonably linear line. And it's usually easy to identify loops whose end systolic pressure volume points either fall below or above the prevailing family of loops. And that's where a little bit of the, of the subjectivity comes in. Mm -hmm. the, final thing, the final thing is that if you hold your, your IVC occlusion too long you will, and you, you have a, a prolonged period of hypotension, you activate the, acti the, the sympathetic nervous system and then you start, you know, changing contractility and heart rate and whatnot. So the way to look at that really is to make sure that the heart rate is reasonably constant during the period of time that you're going to include the beats. If the heart rate starts increasing towards the end of the occlusion, you really don't want to include those beats. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I agree completely. And your point about it being somewhat, you know, subjective and unique in cases that the experimental conditions play into this as well. I mean, con controlling heart rate, uh, moving through the IVC occlusions as a technique as the same way from experiment to experiment, experiment really all kind of accumulate as a, a process where it is subjective. But, you know, having these guidelines is definitely a help. I, on the same accord, we've had someone um, uh, just 
post a quick question about, you know, fitting the ESPVR curve, either linear or exponential fit. Do you have any comments for that? Sure. This is dealt with extensively in the review paper that I mentioned. And I think it depends on what your purpose is. But I've described the ESPVR in its ideal state as being linear with a intercept that, that doesn't change when you change contractility. But depending on what range of pressure and volume points you're able to achieve, the the line may or may not be exactly linear. What's important to, in research, in the research area, as opposed to say this educational aspects where we're looking at you know, ideal conditions, it's always important to, no matter what you equation you wind up using to fit, you should report both the V0 and the EES, because if the line is nonlinear and you just report the slope, you will be, you will be misled as to where you know, what, what the impact of an intervention is. So you need to not only report both, but in a statistical analysis, you need to account for shifts of both, meaning not just doing independent, you know, two separate pair t-tests on V0 and, and EES, but using a more sophisticated statistical analysis like multi-linear multi regression analysis. And this is all detailed in the review article that I, that I mentioned. I think what's important in the end is the position of the end systolic pressure volume relationship relative to each other relative to each other when you're looking at an intervention not necessarily in pure terms the slope or the v0 it's really the relative position of these to each other in in a comparison we actually have also advocated and and this is in the review article also is just using what we call an index for example we call it v120 which is what is the value of the volume where the end systolic pressure volume relationship reaches, crosses 120 millimeters of mercury? Therefore, in that way, you would be able to look at just, you're just saying, okay, I'm looking at it, this is a pressure value that I'm interested in, 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 the, in the range that I'm, I'm working in for, you know, this is an example, 120 millimeters of mercury, and where does the, the pressure volume loop fall in, you know, where does, it, where does it intersect, what volume does it intersect that pressure? So leftward shifts would indicate, you know, smaller V120 would indicate increases in contractility and rightward shifts would be a higher V120 would be a lower index of contractility. So here's where, you know, it's, it, it's important to understand the subtleties of what, of what goes into defining the ESPVR, how to quantify it, how to statistically analyze it, and how to properly present it in a manuscript. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it, listening to this, this answer, it highlights the, you know, the complexity of PV loop science in the, in the research area. It's, uh, it's a visual science. There's, there's no hard and fast rules and regulations uh, really to analyzing and presenting data, but it's being aware the way, of all these, these caveats, right? Yeah, by the way, I think this is the biggest error that I see in papers is they only, when investigators only report EES, and fail to report both and, and do an improper statistical analysis. I've, I've been invited to write a few editorials on such papers. And it makes, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference in the conclusions that you, that you might arrive at. Yeah, and actually, it's, um, I'm glad you brought that up because that will be you know, something we're going to be trying to touch on throughout the, this web series is the statistical component, right? Data management and interpretation and then what, what best practices really need to apply. So, yeah, it's very good that you mentioned that, Dan. And actually, just on this note, it, someone has provided it, just a nice question. What is the difference 
between Emacs, you know, EES, and then Elastins. It just, just reminds me that these terms are often kind of yeah. used interchange, uh, interchangeably throughout papers and yeah. maybe incorrectly, as you were saying before. So maybe provide yeah. a quick clarification yeah. for the group. This is a very subtle point, and it, it's, it's really of historical impact, importance because, I, and I happen to know the answer because I did my, my thesis work in the lab where these terms were, were developed and researched. So Emacs was derived by looking at the, the time-varying elastins. So, so, so to define and the time-varying elastins, what you do is, for example, you take two or three or four loops and you line them up in time, two or three, two or three four or whatever loops under different loading conditions, you line them up in time and you've got their, their pressure volume points at each instant in the cardiac cycle. And at, at each instance, you, do a, you perform a, a regression analysis at that instant in time. And the, that will give you, if you look at, if you just use a linear line, that will give you a slope as a function of time, and that's the, the time-varying elastance. The peak of that curve, which is the peak slope of the isochronal pressure volume relationship, is called Emax. So that is what Emax is. EES is the end systolic elastance and does not take into account time. So in pressure volume loops, the, the, there may be subtle changes in the time to end systole that are a function of the loading conditions. This is a well-known phenomenon in, in uh, muscle. So in muscle, if you, if you increase the sarcomere length, the time to peak pressure, the time to peak force increases. If you look at loops that are obtained over different loading conditions, they don't reach the end systolic pressure volume relationship at the same instant in time. So we change the name from Emax to EES just to say it's the end systolic elastance. It's a very subtle, a very subtle point. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.